0: Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Today's guest is Sarah Kearney. The founder and executive director of Prime Coalition. Prime Coalition is a public charity whose mission is to partner with philanthropists to place charitable capital into market based solutions to climate change. I just met Sarah last week, but had heard about her from probably 50 different people before finally having a great lunch with her. And I'm so excited to have her on as a guest. She's doing a bunch of really innovative things with Prime around taking charitable capital and deploying it on the innovation side of climate change, specifically with technological breakthroughs, and has aspirations to apply that model across a whole lot of other sectors as well. I hope you enjoy this episode with Sarah as much as I did. Okay, Sarah Carney. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am pumped to be here. Typically, I'm high energy, but as you walked in here, it actually made me think that I've met someone who's higher energy than me.
1: I'm going to take that as a compliment. I have a self-awareness about being too much at times, so I am not a coffee drinker, like out of mindfulness for others.
0: I should be the same way, but I am quite the coffee drinker. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure many former Runkeeper people, if they're listening to this, would say that I should not be a coffee drinker, but, (laughs) but I am. So I'm very excited to have you here. It's funny, we just met for the first time last week over the but your name has probably come up 50 times in the journey so far. It's like six degrees of Sarah Carney.
1: Hopefully people say nice things.
0: <laughs> oh, no. You guys are definitely, you're a node in the network. You guys are doing very meaningful work and it's work that I didn't know existed and that I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't know exist. And so, yeah, I think not only am I psyched to get you on here to talk about Prime Coalition, but you've got a really interesting perspective on this problem that's on my mind and our listeners' minds as well.
1: Great. Well, I'm very happy to be here, happy to share my story. I personally and Prime as an organization have pretty audacious goals that I hope to achieve in my lifetime, both related to climate change mitigation, but also to setting a standard for philanthropic investment intermediation in what is now kind of an undeveloped marketplace for that across many cause areas. So I'm always happy to kind of share that in hopes that other smart people will join us in a choir of voices working toward both of those goals.
0: Well, that sets the table nicely. Let's just get right into it then. Let's talk about those goals. What are they?
1: Sure. So Prime is a nonprofit, which means that we have a theory of change and a mission And our primary impact goal, if you think about it as kind of a logic model, like the thing all the way on the right hand side, is to reduce the biophysical and social consequences of climate change. That is our paramount end goal, mitigate climate change. But along the way, we have found that we are among a very small set of early organizations that is helping to unlock catalytic capital, philanthropic capital to market-driven solutions. And so kind of a secondary goal that we're working hard to do well is to bring rigor to the framework that anyone could use in any cause area that might have market-driven solutions to a social problem, and a capital gap that can be filled with philanthropic capital. Um, So I'm happy to say more about that later. But our goal in the foreseeable future is to stay within the bounds of climate change mitigation, but do things in a way that can be replicated in many cause areas.
0: And you were explaining to me a little bit over lunch, so let me test my metal and see if I get it. But basically, if you take innovation, innovation is an important lever for climate change, and it's also one where some of the technology that ultimately needs to scale, there's this period early on where it isn't a good candidate for market-based capital, but that where potentially, if it got over a bridge where some modest amount of capital could help them get over that bridge, it would actually be well-positioned to be, for market based capital. And when you find those in areas that should scale but have that bridge to cross before it's ready for market based capital, that philanthropic capital might be a good candidate for innovation investing.
1: That was excellent. I'm very impressed with your takeaway of I just our to show day. off. Hey. I mean
0: I, that's why I brought you on, just to <laughs> show how much I know. <laughs>
1: You're hired. Um, We've used a few different words over time. The kind of taxonomy of the moment is catalytic capital. But basically, in my mind, the type of capital that we're talking about, the real unique value proposition of it is that it seeks to achieve additionality. And so when we're talking about for-profit investments that achieve additionality, that could be done in a number of ways. One is accepting timelines that are longer and untenable for our traditional market rate investment vehicles, whether kind of the asset owners themselves can't take on that timeline, or it's an asset class like venture capital that might not be able to invest beyond a 10-year close-ended fund life cycle. So timeline is one reason that someone might not be able to invest. Another is disproportionate risk. So risk of a wide variety, anything that you could qualify as a risk. In our category, oftentimes it's technological risk, regulatory risk. So philanthropic capital has a mandate to take on disproportionate risk. And the third is, and this is what has become kind of the moniker of philanthropic investing, is lower financial returns. Now, you don't have to make lower financial returns than your market rate counterparts. But it's almost like Kleenex became to facial tissue what below market financial returns came to philanthropic investing, it's like become synonymous with. One of my bugbear issues is that I think it's exciting, the idea of just doing investments that no one would be able to do because it's disproportionate risk, like super high risk, but could also be super high financial return if you do it really well and work hard to build successful companies. So for any of those three reasons, timeline, disproportionate risk, lower financial return, you qualify because of the additionality for philanthropic capital. And you have to remember that the opportunity cost of this philanthropic dollar is making a grant. And so you can take a dollar that would otherwise be used as a grant and instead make a for-profit investment. And it could be an innovation, like you mentioned, or it could be many asset classes. Prime started an innovation because... No one had really done this in any area of science and engineering innovation before we started bringing our philanthropic partners together, and we thought the dollar size was appropriate. But now that we've proven out the mechanics, I'm actually super excited about how the same framework and approach of aggregating philanthropic capital can be used across a wide variety of asset classes. You know, you can imagine buying down risk for project finance, growth equity, and not just in climate change, like I said before, but any area where there are market-based solutions to big social problems.
0: Well, when you look at the types of capital that come into this area, there's the Impact capital, right, and that could be—I just learned this word in the last few weeks—but concessionary or non-concessionary capital. So capital that is okay compromising financial returns, right, or capital that is expects market rate returns. And then you're talking about—it sounds like you use the term blended capital. So what are some of the biggest differences between this blended? model involving philanthropic capital and more traditional impact investing?
1: There's a lot of words that people use interchangeably. I think they all mean different things to different people. But there was a time a few years ago where I used the word concessionary investing to one of Prime's philanthropic partners. He's actually kind of the granddaddy of Prime. His name is Jesse Fink, and he was the first ever operating grantor that made a grant to this idea before we had anything to show. So it was very courageous, and he's very daring and just a wonderful, kind person. And years after his first grant, I said, you know, I really want to build out this marketplace of concessionary investors. And he said, Sarah, don't use that word. I don't wake up every day wanting to make a concession. (laughs) He's like, I wake up every day wanting to change the world. So we need a better taxonomy. That was very meaningful to me. And I really took it to heart. And the second piece is, I think there's a lot of creativity that could go into this idea of blended finance. It's work that has been done in other sectors for a long time. Development finance abroad has been doing this. There's a number of of examples right here in Boston and other cause areas that have done it, but it's basically where you combine different classes of shares in the same vehicle to accept different levels of risk and different expectations of financial return so that you can kind of efficiently apply those different colors of money at different times for different purposes and everybody performs better together. And so in our case, our early mathematical modeling showed us, and we're in the midst of of making this even more sophisticated now, that if you could combine charitable capital, the type that Prime has been marshalling over the past five years, together with market rate capital, the same types of money that might go into a traditional venture firm, the market rate capital can protect the charitable intent over the lifetime of the company. And the charitable capital can buy down the risk early. And using the same mathematical model like both sides perform better when they're working efficiently together. So, this is very early in our own modeling of all of this, but it's kind of the ultimate vision for how Prime could lift up the whole investment sector in this cause area is by combining, and maybe it's not as simple as two different colors of money, maybe it's three different colors of money. You know, you have a first loss reserve, and then you have a catalytic tranche that takes on disproportionate early technology risk. And then you have a market rate tranche that goes in later, but can come in in part early so that it's buying shares low. Anyway, there's like a lot of complex financial engineering to be done. But that is what I think when you say the words blended capital back to me.
0: But to make this work, it seems I've been reading a little bit. It seems like under the hood, it's complicated with the tax laws and different types of, there's some acronyms that I'm blanking on, but there's some different acronyms for different types of grants that can be made. I think one begins with a J maybe. (laughs) Did I
1: get that right? (laughs) Prime, the public charity that I founded, we really focus on one Type of money that could play into blended capital. For that type, which we call either catalytic or philanthropic, some people call it concessionary, there are multiple ways to deploy that money into for profit solutions. And so for us, if A blended finance vehicle is the ultimate vision. We saw a number of steps that needed to happen in order to prove out the mechanics, even just for the charitable part of that blended capital vision. So phase one for us was deal-by-deal syndication to explore the boundaries of what you're allowed to do with charitable capital. And in that phase, we helped four different types of philanthropic asset owners, foundations, donor-advised funds, corporate giving programs, and individuals slash trusts slash households slash corporations deploy money either directly into companies that we had pre-established as qualifying for charitability. And we would help a foundation claim that as a program-related investment. So PRI is one acronym. Ah, yes. <laughs> doesn't start with J. Uh, P. (laughs) I'm going through this with my three-year-old right now. No, that's a P, (laughs) not a J. (laughs) And uh, PRI is something that's only relevant to private foundations, but for them, they have a mandatory 5% payout requirement where they have to give away 5% of their assets to charity every year. And a PRI counts toward that expenditure requirement. So to them, it counts as a grant, but it can take the form of equity or debt directly to a for-profit, to a nonprofit, and the only difference is that they write it into their tax forms at the end of the year as a grant. It's called a program-related investment. The other way that people came in in deal-by-deal syndication mode with us was through something that we call a recoverable grant. So this looks like a reciprocal contract, but the function to the grantor is the same that they've been in the business of doing for hundreds of years, which is making a grant to a nonprofit. And it just happens that we give the grant back to the grant making organization under a certain set of circumstances. We then make a grant to the company and the company repays us in a success scenario. So that was phase one, deal by deal syndication, the two paths for supporting prime type companies. And for us, in all of the phases, we have the same underwriting criteria. We're looking for gigaton scale CO2 equivalent emissions reduction for each company that we support. We're looking for companies that, for which we have confidence that if they were to reach a certain milestone, market rate investors would be interested. And then the third is that the company might have a difficult time raising money without us. So additionality. So that was phase one. Phase two for us, we now have the prime impact fund that's up and running. And this is a 20 to $40 million seed fund that is 100% philanthropic. And so the ways that people have come into that are as traditional grants, recoverable grants, program-related investments, and in some cases, what we call mission-related investments, which doesn't count as a grant and might just be from an individual, a foundation, that doesn't care about the tax write-off, but believes that this thing is needed to fill the capital gap that we're addressing. So those are the mechanics of money into Prime. So
0: is all the money that's coming into Prime a philanthropic grant of some kind?
1: Yes, in phase one, yes. In phase two, in majority, yes. And a few parties that surprised us by saying, I don't care about the tax benefit, I know this is needed. I'm just going to do it. I don't have a foundation or a donor advice fund. I'll just do it personally. And so in that case, they didn't get a tax write-off for it. And they, just, they went in with eyes wide open that this whole thing is designed to be philanthropic and that we're targeting additionality, but they didn't get a tax benefit.
0: And what percent of those dollars that are coming in are done as grants that are just like I would give a grant to... A charity that I'm supporting, where it's not about an investment or a return, versus a grant that then the grantee is expecting some type of return on that capital that. I assume, could then be redeployed for additional grants.
1: This also surprised us. We really thought for the Prime Impact Fund, people would come in either as program-related investments or recoverable grants. And so we were surprised by the mission investors that didn't get a tax write-off, and we were surprised by the traditional grantors. So we do have a number of parties that came in with traditional grants. I would say it's about a quarter of the total fund, dollar-wise, and probably 10%. Um, In terms of number of organizations,
0: Uh typically with Prime, in many instances you're co-investing with more traditional financial investors. Correct?
1: That's exactly right. That's that is something that we look for and work for. We like co-investors at the same time, and we hope that the company eventually graduates from us for follow-on investment from other firms later.
0: So this is where I get a little confused because let's say I want to help the cause and there's two paths. One is to quote-unquote invest through Prime, which sounds like it's a grant, right? Or I could do a financial investment through the financial investor that you're investing alongside of, in which case I'd be supporting the mission with the chance of a a personal financial return. Am I understanding that? right?
1: Yeah, I think our co-investors, so for example, I'll tell you the story of our first investment. I think it's demonstrative and speaks to your question. It's a company called Quidnet Energy. And the idea came from a Saudi Aramco engineer. And he's a geophysicist. His concept was to use old oil and gas wells to do pumped hydro storage. So pumped hydro is the most ubiquitous form of grid capacity energy storage on the grid here in the U.S., but you can't do it everywhere that you need to dispatch large amounts of electricity. And so his concept was, let's turn pumped hydro on its head and pump water down hole. And under pressure, if you take the pressure off, the water will come shooting back up out of the hole and turn a turbine, and it will be like a big cheap land battery where you don't have any of the expensive parts of battery storage for the grid. And he had done all the computational modeling, And he needed to run a pilot test to prove that this idea was not crazy. And it was a pilot test that could have squandered a million dollars in a couple of hours. And so we went to Prime's investment advisory committee and we said, Would you be interested in investing in this company if it makes it to? a certain roof point.
0: And the advisory committee is more traditional financial investors that would be potential follow-on for prime investments?
1: That's exactly right. The prime investment advisory committee represents what we think is possibly a majority of market rate investors in this sector for early stage investments.
0: Non-concessionary.
1: Non-concessionary.
0: But still catalytic, or no?
1: Yes, in (laughs) some ways. I mean, their volunteerism (laughs) with prime is certainly catalytic. And so we asked them, you know, would you be interested to invest later? And then the second part of their assessment is, what are the reasons that would prevent you from being able to make this investment right now? And that gives us the contemporaneous documentation of making the case that this company would have a difficult time raising money without our philanthropic capital. So that kind of establishes charitability in that moment. And then once we decide to invest from Prime, If other market rate investors want to join us, that's great.
0: In that round?
1: Sure. Yeah, in that round, in follow-on rounds. like We have seen time and again that just our presence in the round gives others confidence to be there. So in that way, in addition to going earlier than most are willing to go, just being there first, and a lot of times now with the Prime Impact Fund leading, setting terms, doing things that other investors might not be in a position to do is catalytic in and of itself.
0: But everyone participating in a Prime vehicle is technically a donor and not an investor, correct?
1: If they are going through Prime, they are a philanthropist.
0: Got it. Essentially, if someone could raise the market-based capital without you, then that wouldn't be a good fit. The fit is either when you are a bridge or you're the catalyst that gets the others to the table.
1: Yes. And- In fact, this has happened. We've brought a company to our investment advisory committee that went through and then that company was able to raise its round without us. And that's great. That's a win because you have to remember our ultimate end goal is climate impact. And so if we think a really high impact company was going to need our help and then they don't, That's a win for planet Earth. So just going back to the Quidnet example, Prime did 100% of its seed one tranche. It paid for one pilot test. The pilot test went really well. We were able to raise a seed two where Prime was 50% of the round and the Clean Energy Venture Group here in town was 50% of the round. Um, That paid for 47 more pilot tests. That went very well. We were able to raise a seed three that was then 80% market rate, 20%. Catalytic, that recruited a CEO, and then the CEO was able to raise a Series A that was co-led by the Breakthrough Energy Ventures and Evoke Innovations, which we would consider market rate investors. And so that kind of story of ramping down support from the philanthropy community and graduating to market rate investment is exactly what we would want to see over and over again. And then back to your question you, Jason, have the option of being an LP. Well, I don't know if you personally have the option of being an LP, but being an LP in a venture fund, you could also use your donor advised fund or your foundation to make a recoverable grant to Prime and you'd be playing in different ways over time, potentially for the same company. You're able to do that by working with a third party independent nonprofit because issues like self-dealing and lining your own pockets with tax-benefited capital goes away. Like, we absolve you of that risk.
0: So here's another way I'm going to test my understanding of the issue, which hopefully will be helpful for anyone else out there that's listening and, and also trying to understand. But So let's say I have a donor-advised fund, which is essentially it's like a mini-foundation without all the overhead, right? And so, so if I have a donor-advised fund, there's the grantees that I'm supporting from that fund. So I might support the American Cancer Society or the Horizons for Homeless or or other causes that are important to me. But then the assets themselves are invested much like they would be if I own a mutual fund, right? And so Prime is not necessarily a grantee, but it's more of what do you do with the assets when you have them and that could be then part of the portfolio. So I might have part of the portfolio invested in publicly traded blue chip stocks, but then I might have part of the portfolio that's more speculative. And so it's not actually my money. It's donor advised. It's money I've earmarked for philanthropy, but I can earmark a portion of it to, quote unquote, invest, well, really to invest the assets from the fund, which are are not mine anymore, right, into supporting these catalytic breakthrough technologies that need to build a bridge before they're ready for market-based capital. Is that?
1: That is that is close, oh, but inaccurate. <laughs> I I had it. <laughs> <laughs> so good. But your, your description of how donor advised funds work was really good. The description of how donor advised funds interact with Prime was just slightly inaccurate. But before I dive into that, I would like to give a shout out to a few of the Donor Advice Fund sponsors that have done this with us early and first to help me know how to correct you. Because when we started Prime, we originally stood for Program-Related Investment Makers of Energy. That is exclusively for foundations. It's only in getting into this work. That
0: is the Prime acronym? Yes. Wow.
1: (laughs) That is not consumer-facing
0: at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I very rarely (laughs) I very rarely share that insider <laughs> secret
1: with anybody. We don't say so it Prime anymore. is such
0: a catchy, hey. it's just so easy to say. <laughs>
1: Thanks. We feel good about it. Feel strong. But we named it that because I was coming from having run a private foundation. We knew that program-related investments, which are only related to foundations, were theoretically relevant here. What we didn't know is that there was this other hugely growing asset called a donor advice fund. And so as we got into this, some very courageous and creative donors with donor advice funds were inbound to us and said, hey, I see you doing this with foundations. Can you also work with me and my donor advice fund? And so the Boston Foundation was the very first donor advice fund sponsor to do transactions with Prime.
0: So the Boston Fund is a fund that actually manages donor advice funds on behalf of high net worth individuals and families?
1: Yes. And so there's multiple types of donor advice funds. There's community foundations like the Boston Foundation. We've done transactions with other community foundations like the Charlottesville Area Community Foundation. Foundation and the Silicon Valley Community Foundations, they sponsor donor advised funds. There are kind of national institutions. So we've done transactions with Fidelity Charitable, Schwab Charitable, Vanguard Charitable, National Philanthropic Trust. And then there are kind of boutique impact investing donor advised fund sponsors like impact assets we've done transactions with them as well so no matter where your donor advised fund is sponsored the slight adjustment that i would make to your very nice description of how donor advice funds work don't is,
0: coddle me just <laughs> just let me have it
1: is when you do a transaction with prime which itself is a public charity it's exactly the same transaction that you have been doing to the American Cancer Society or to any homeless shelter in this case you're making a recoverable grant and so to a public charity so Under a certain set of circumstances, we would give the money back to your donor-advised fund. And in our case, it's structured a little bit like a loan that only comes back to you under a certain set of circumstances that it's kind of contingent on the performance of the company, if you've done it for one company at a time in our deal-by-deal syndication era, or on the performance of the whole portfolio of the Prime Impact Fund. So it's a recoverable grant. It is a grant. And it's easier in a sense because you don't have to work with the donor advised fund sponsor, which typically has very strict restrictions on what they will put on their investment platform. So each donor advised fund sponsor has its own set of internal policies that governs what you can consider an investment for a donor advised fund. And oftentimes, and in our case, by definition, these for-profit investments very high risk for profit investments would not qualify to be on that platform. And so, in our case, recoverable grant is a way to, for donor advised fund donors to kind of scratch their impact investing itch without having to move their whole sponsor to putting more impact investments on their platform.
0: Uh huh. And then, is the return capped at the amount of the initial grant?
1: So, in our case, in deal by deal, syndication land, we structured our recoverable grants one company at a time as a 15% interest rate loan that was subordinated to everything. So it was peri passu with common. So it's like a loan, but you get paid back last. So it's very grant-like. But if the company you're supporting is successful, we really want our donors to participate and enjoy in that financial upside. So,
0: you mean their fund, their donor advised their, their fund, their donor
1: advised fund, right? We want you to be able to re-grant to other good causes. Wouldn't that exactly. be wonderful? Which is a
0: key distinction. I mean, it's still about return, but it's return to facilitate more granting. It's not return to facilitate an Antucket house.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It doesn't go back into anybody's personal pocket to like buy your private jet, but it could go into your donor advised fund to support more homeless shelters. Wouldn't that be lovely?
0: That's one of the things about donor advised funds is that you you have a vehicle not only to make grants from, but you have a vehicle that if invested properly could grow and enable you to be far more philanthropic. And actually, so Tim from Impact Assets, he is an alum of the same college as me and we had breakfast a few months ago, but that was one of the things he was educating me on. So I'm also grateful grateful to him. But he was educating me on the fact that these funds are not just about making grants, but there's not enough attention put on how the assets themselves are invested. And sometimes they're invested in ways that aren't aligned at all with philosophically the causes you, you care about. For example, maybe they're invested in fossil fuels when the causes you care about are climate causes. And so bringing more transparency to that and more control is empowering.
1: Yes, I will give a shout out to Tim and his team who have been wonderful partners to Prime. And three of their donors have participated in the Prime Impact Fund, the Blue Haven Initiative, which is Liesl Pritzker Simmons and her husband Ian, And the Autodesk Foundation has used a donor advised fund at the Impact Assets. And the Rolf family has recently done a customized investment with Impact Investments. And so I read an article. This is my little shout out to Impact Assets. Some of their donors with their investments in their donor advised fund at Impact Investments supported Beyond Meat in their early days for like, around a million dollars. And then with the IPO, that million dollars turned into $30 million, which went back into their donor advised fund, pushed impact assets today over $700 million in assets. It's a really big deal. And all of that money is going to be redeployed into other good causes. So I think it's an interesting time for donor advised funds as a category. And I applaud impact assets for being at the cutting edge.
0: Huh, yeah, it's a new world and it's definitely an area that I'd like to continue learning a lot more about. But switching gears for a moment, one question before we do, which is, is Prime Coalition, is it more like a, does it feel to you more like a nonprofit or like an impact investing firm?
1: Our goal is to achieve both and achieve both in purpose built ways. So I will answer from my personal perspective, which is I am a nonprofit leader. Employed by a nonprofit, like my compensation is benchmarked against other executive directors at nonprofits. When we built the Prime Impact Fund, we need that fund to behave in many ways like a hard nosed investor. Like we oftentimes people use the word patient capital, and I'm like, no, no, we're really impatient. We need these companies to achieve commercial scale fast. And in order to do that, we have to drive them like for-profit investors because we all know kind of the SBIR story of good ideas laying fallow because they don't have the right forcing functions getting them to scale. And we need to be taken seriously by our co-investors and follow-on investors. It's our ultimate end goal that prime companies are as attractive to follow on market rate investors as possible. So we don't want them to be branded as kind of charity cases. They are not. They are what we think are the best ideas. They just happen to be a poor fit with traditional asset classes right now. That was a long way of saying our investment fund is a single member LLC that is owned by Prime, the nonprofit, and it inherits the nonprofit status. And that's important for donor advised funds or foundations that want to come in using philanthropic capital. Like transactionally, it's easier for them to do that into a nonprofit entity. But the for-profit fund functions a lot like venture capital firms that you're more familiar with. It has a management company that employs investment managers. They're compensated based on a budget that's drawn from the fund. We have manager performance incentives. In our case, because it's a nonprofit fund, their incentives are gated by climate impact milestones. And so if the companies we support are not achieving the gigaton scale emissions reduction or working their way toward the products and services that could achieve gigaton scale emissions reduction. Our managers don't participate in financial reward, even if those companies are very lucrative. So I think there are kind of corporate form and business strategy choices that we've made to imbue the whole thing as nonprofit while also being thoughtful about what are the aspects of what we're doing that need to lean very for-profit. And I will say the hardest and most important thing that we do is in the selection of the people that are making our investment decisions. They have to be really talented, deeply knowledgeable people that also have climate change mitigation in their heart. It's hard, hard to find those people. They are unicorns. I feel very, very fortunate with the team that we've built so far.
0: If you had to choose between the purity of mission orientation with maybe mediocre. Investing skills from a market based standpoint or stellar market based investing, but with a bit more of a greenwash perspective, like with the right words, but maybe not authentic to the core of the mission, where would you come down?
1: We're fortunate that we don't have to make that choice. It's a false dichotomy. (laughs) No, I really, I can say that now because we're in the midst of recruiting and building the team. And we've just been like inundated with totally badass investors that care like you and are kind of scared about like, how do we solve this global problem?
0: Just switching gears for a moment. If you look at overall philanthropy. I've been told, actually, I was told yesterday from your colleague, Nicole, who you introduced me to, that climate philanthropy, it's not a very dense ecosystem of climate funders. I mean, it, it looks more in the dozens in terms of the total number of meaningful funders in the space. So I guess one question is, why is that?
1: That's a difficult question to answer. Because
0: like Yale, didn't Yale do a study that said like 51% of people in the US are concerned about climate change, yet there's only a few dozen climate funders? Oh, man.
1: I view this a little bit in a Game of Thrones light. Like we have the existential risk of the White Walkers, but we also have all the political goings on of the realm. And history of philanthropy comes from relief of the poor. And I think given that history combined with human nature, which is myopic, like you want to see that the good that you intend to do is happening, you enjoy seeing immediacy in impact, climate change is this difficult, perfect storm of the consequences are very long-term, they are uncertain in some ways, and complex, and yet the interventions to address it need to happen immediately with urgency at large scale and are also complex. (laughs) So I think the dynamics of the problem and the needed solutions makes this a very difficult area. I don't think that there's a lot of people that need to be converted to be highly anxious about the threat of climate change. I just think a lot of people feel powerless or don't actually have the resources to do what is needed. So it's not a first order problem of convincing people that climate change is important. It's like a second order of, okay, once you believe that climate change is an existential threat that needs to be addressed, what are the levers that need to be pulled and who has the resources to pull those levers? That didn't really answer your question about why there aren't more philanthropic funders. But
0: But the obvious follow-up question to that is if a high percentage of people are anxious about it and a low percentage of people are mobilized. What do we do to change that?
1: My personal take is that there needs to be a better market segmentation of who has the resources to do what and better tools to help those with appropriate resources to allocate them appropriately and probably work together. So one thing that I think has been special about what we've done at Prime is given the context that you mentioned of having relatively few funders already committed to climate as a category is that we've measured our success by the number of first-time philanthropic investors that we've mobilized, like people that had never made a program-related investment or a recoverable grant before, and by the number of first-time energy or climate investors, so people that had never done a grant or an investment to anything related to climate change. And so now of the 90-some parties that have participated in prime transactions, at least 40 of them had never done anything in climate change before. So like that to me, is meaningful. We need easy on-ramps. But what we're doing that is also very few kind of traditional philanthropists do is recognize the power of science and engineering innovation as a lever to pull. I think historically in the same way that philanthropy came from a place of poverty alleviation, the kind of default levers to pull for philanthropists are policy advocacy. And in a lot of cases here, to achieve scale, The power of markets needs to be harnessed. And so power of markets can be early stage innovation, it can be later stage deployment, there's like all different stages of the innovation and deployment pipeline. But it's exciting to me that we're pulling in the non usual suspects to do that.
0: Well, given that you're focused on the breakthrough technology segment, one of the things I've heard from guess what I'll call the deployment crazies is that we already have everything we need from an innovation standpoint, and we just need to deploy what we've got. And oh, by the way, even if we don't have what we need, we don't have time for breakthroughs because deployment takes so many years that we should just work with whatever we've got already given the time scale that we're working on. So how do you respond to that?
1: <laughs> I find that to be another false choice. I was fortunate to write a paper- with Professor Fiona Murray from MIT, and a gentleman named Scott Berger, who is just finishing up his PhD at MIT, and Lee Chen Ma, who leads the mission. Cambridge Associates, right? Yeah, he now leads the mission investing team at Cambridge Associates. So the four of us together, we kind of basically put forth this thesis that Early-stage innovation all the way through late-stage deployment is like a succession of feedback loops, right? If you have a proven solution, it still benefits from innovation in place, and aspects of it go back for new invention. It's a more complex system than kind of an oversimplified take that it's innovation versus deployment. So I suggest the Stanford Social Innovation Review article on the subject. It's a false choice. And it's also a little oversimplified in terms of different asset owners that have the capacity to participate in different parts of the innovation and deployment pipeline, right? Like I think a lot about a single family office that we work with that has a donor advised fund, a foundation, a direct investments team, and a wealth advisor. And so for them, through their wealth advisor, they're probably LPs in project finance vehicles that are deploying the proven solutions of today through their direct investments. They're supporting kind of growth stage equity in the developing world through their donor advised fund. They're doing prime transactions. And through their foundation, they're advocating for political leaders that have the will to someday put a price on carbon. And so I think this idea of like one solution over prioritized over another is not nuanced enough in terms of the asset owners and their their own priorities and constraints and how it might fit across that whole pipeline.
0: So for the people out there that are concerned about climate change and maybe not mobilized yet, as you said, feeling anxious about it, what advice do you have for them in terms of where to start? Because you mentioned there's the prime route, there's the traditional climate NGOs, there's the policy realm, there's probably a number of other places I'm not thinking about right now. So I guess how does one get going and how do they go about figuring out where the right place is for them to anchor?
1: I would say the right place to start as with anything is kind of to know yourself. Like what are you bringing to the table? Is it your time? Is it your own expertise in a relevant field? is it your charitable dollars? Is it your investment dollars? Do you have a huge family and you can change their behavior? Are you a particularly persuasive person and you can influence? Do you get really fired up and you want to kind of take it to the hill? And I think just think about your own strengths. And I would say whatever assets and strengths you have, like, then go on a learning journey to figure out how to bring those assets and strengths to bear. This is the biggest challenge of all of our lifetimes, and we need all of it going to all of these things. It is not an either-or. Do I think there's more efficient things that you can do? Yes. Do I think that any of it is not valuable? No. The scale of the problem and the scale of required solutions cannot be overstated.
0: So if you take out any individual personalities and skill sets and you only just talk about $100 billion, if you had $100 billion in your hands right now and you could put it towards anything to help with the climate fight, how would you allocate that for it to have the biggest impact?
1: Personally, I wouldn't want to have $100 billion. Just having the personal experience of seeing how small dollars... When allocated thoughtfully, that have special ability can be almost more powerful. Like, you don't need a special allocation of $100 billion if you can catalyze and unlock all of the global assets toward this. And so, to me, what's much more valuable would be $500 million of philanthropic capital that I can apply surgically to then unlock all of the global markets to run in the direction that we want them to.
0: So is climate then properly funded with the few dozen donors that we
1: have? A few dozen is not quite the scale that I'm talking about, but I think if we can get, of the 86,000 foundations in the US, if we can get even five or 10% of them substantively committed to this, it would be very meaningful. 1% of all the assets in U.S. private foundations outsizes all of U.S.-based venture capital. So like, there are scale questions and fit questions that are more relevant than allocation of a very large fund.
0: And I guess one final question that comes to mind is just you alluded at the beginning of this discussion to the ambition of Prime Beyond Climate and that the model could apply in a number of other places. I find myself with two reactions to that. One reaction is that's awesome because if you prove it out in climate and the same, I don't know if you call it a loophole, but whatever the white space you found with the tax codes to enable this type of philanthropic investing in innovation could be applied to not just climate innovation, but a whole bunch of other innovation. I think that's awesome, right? But the other side of me says, wow, climate is such a huge problem And we're so woefully unequipped to tackle it. And I would hate to see Prime lose its focus when it could be driving ruthlessly to make as big a dent as possible on this problem. So how do you think about that trade-off?
1: Yes, I think about that trade-off all the time. Prime itself as an organization is committed to and will remain committed to the sole mission of climate change mitigation. So organizationally, everything I'm about to say I will not allow it to be a distraction from that mission. That said, if we can share... We have the
0: proof on this
1: recording. (laughs) 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 That's great. But if along the way, as we built out our additionality rubric and our investment advisory committee to establish additionality and we built the corporate form of a fund that is unabashedly impact first... And that took a year and a ton of attorney time. Like, If we can share what we are learning about surprising aspects of impact-first investing, best practices, things we could have done better and save other people time, energy, and avoid potential abuse... By others that would make a black mark on the whole marketplace. like That's something that I am interested to do. One step that we've taken so far is that we share our fund formation documents with anybody that is interested to build an analogous vehicle.
0: I heard that. And that spirit, I think, is so important. And the funny thing about that is that not only is it important given the scope of this problem, but just in business in general, even if you're building like an ad network or something, I just think that collaborative spirit is actually better business, selfishly. To it's better business as well.
1: I find it to be more fun. <laughs> that sure. too.
0: Yeah, life's too short. And that's the other thing is if you live in paranoid and like looking both ways and and whispering everywhere that you go, it's no way to live either.
1: Yeah, I will say it's become easier over time to live that value myself. When you're starting something, it feels like the world is small and you kind of have to defend your territory and your network to benefit what you're building. Just in the last couple of months, I really feel like our goal of at prime of flipping philanthropists from being afraid to go first on something that's new and hard to now being afraid to miss out on something that makes a lot of sense that is a win 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 all around has like that tipping point is just happening now and the universe is so much bigger than even i knew and i'm the one that's been beating the drum of how big this opportunity is and so i don't mean to toot my own horn and say that i've always been able to be that open and sharing but like i'm just understanding the depths of the opportunity here for humanity and like it's going to need a lot of people in the army. <laughs> like, let's get all the soldiers up to speed so that we can solve some of these problems.
0: It's funny, you know, I mean, I'm just building a humble podcast over here. But when I think about the podcast listeners, I'm thinking about it similarly in the sense that, I mean, I want the insiders who have been doing this for 20, 30 years to respect the efforts and to tune in. But this was really not focused on them. Like, they already know all this stuff. And to be honest, it's also not focused on the other extreme of like the skeptics and people that just think this is all annoying paranoia and should go away. It's focused on the people who are thoughtful and intentional about how they live their lives that are out accomplished in whatever their field of pursuit is, but who are not mobilized in this area and whose conscience is just weighing on them because this issue is just getting in their brain more and more and more and more, but they're not doing anything about it yet. They don't really know how to think about it and they don't know where to help, how to help, where to start. So if we could give them a little nudge to get them over the edge and we could get them up the learning curve faster and figure out what their piece should be, then- in our own weird way, that's helping the cause.
1: I will say in my suggestion to kind of understand your own assets and strengths and what you can bring to bear on the problem, I would be remiss not to say, if charitable capital is one of those resources, please come and talk to us at Prime. We would love to have you in the tribe.
0: Awesome, well, I'll definitely keep that in mind and I will take you up on that and talk to you more about it. And I I guess the last thing is just, what haven't I asked you that I should have or what parting words do you have to our listeners?
1: If you're still with us at this point in the podcast, thanks for being interested in our story. I think of it as kind of this amazing Jack team of badasses toiling away. We work really hard day in and day out. And... We uh, are very appreciative of other people that share this mission. So thank you for being interested in the topic and digging in and listening to our little story.
0: And where do people go if they want to learn more about Prime Coalition?
1: You can visit us at www.primecoalition.org. And if you're a philanthropist, you can enter your email address and we'll be in touch with you. You can also just sign up for general email updates, which we send once every six to nine months. So we do not inundate you with stuff. But if you want to be in the know about what we've been up to, we do send out updates every so often.
0: Okay, Sarah Carney, thanks a lot for coming.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey,
0: everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs 22 Where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you.